0: The sermon text this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin.
1: I've mentioned many times before that I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And while I was part of that faith, there were many rules and practices we were told to observe. And one of them, for example, had to do with what we ate on Fridays during the Lenten season. Specifically, if one was over the age of 14, that person is not to eat meat on those days. And meat was defined as food whose source is a warm-blooded animal, which is why some of you may have noticed restaurants offering seafood and listing them on the menu as Friday special. Now, this practice... Is actually a form of penance in honor of the death of Jesus, which occurred on a Friday. Now, when I became a follower of Christ, not complying with some of those practices still bothered my conscience to some extent, and I had to seek the wisdom of more mature believers to find out if I should continue to be bothered based on God's word. Now, all of us in this body come from different church cultures and denominations, and I think it's fair to say that we develop certain scruples from our times in those churches. And I can imagine that many of us continue to deal with reconciling our personal scruples with God's revealed mandates, whether we're new believers or we've been in the faith for a good while. Now, in matters where God's commands are crystal clear, there can be no compromise. What He says goes. But in other matters, things are not as clear. And these matters we sometimes refer to as gray areas And in our passage this morning, which is from the ESV, these gray areas are referred to as opinions. In the NIV, I like the translation, it's translated disputable matters. Last week, our pastor began began our study of Romans 14, uh, specifically verses 1 to 12. Now, our passage for today picks up from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. If we take a big picture view of the entire chapter, we can see that Paul is touching on the subject that churches refer to as Christian liberty. Christian liberty is a phrase used to describe the posture of the Christian with respect to those areas of ethical concerns where God, and consequently Scripture, is silent. Those are matters that God has not legislated on and are therefore ethically neutral. Now, let me re-emphasize, and you will hear me say this over and over today. The idea of Christian liberty doesn't apply to how we respond to the explicit laws of God. We don't have the liberty ever to disobey His commandments. Now, in the first 12 verses, Paul goes back and forth addressing those who are weak in the faith and those who are strong in the faith. But in the remainder of the chapter, he focuses on the strong, giving them instructions on how to behave in deference to the weak. And the question that we should ask, which the apostle, thankfully, addresses in this chapter, is this. At what point does Christian liberty affect a believer's ethical decisions? Where do those things start affecting each other? An article that came out in 2017 stated that there are approximately... 41,000 Christian denominations worldwide. Although this takes into account or consideration cultural distinctions of denominations in different countries, like a Baptist church in the U.S. and a Baptist church in another country. They may believe in the same things, but because they're culturally different, they're counted as two. So there's an overlapping of many denominations. But even if we're talking about half of that, let's say 20,000, that's still a lot. Of denominations and subcultural groups and one possible reason for the existence of different denominations has to do with one group having a certain set of scruples that another group doesn't have for example there are churches that prohibit dancing and or going to the movies and or the wearing of lipstick while other churches allow these things I mean there are churches that say women should. Only wear dresses, never pants. There are debates on whether it's permissible for a Christian to drink wine and on and on and on. And one of the problems that the church has always had to deal with is the proper place of traditions in, of men in a believer's ethical norms. One of the forms of legalism that Jesus addressed in his dealing with the Pharisees was their substituting the traditions of men for the law of God, or taking human tradition and elevating it to the level of a divine mandate. Churches still deal with that today, and we have to be careful about that sort of thing. But before we touch on Romans 14, I would like for us to take a short detour and consider a related passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, specifically verses 24 to 30. You don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 24 to 30. There are principles that are common to the Corinthian passage and the passage that we have for today, but I would just mention that there are scholars who think that these are two entirely different situations. In our passage for today, Paul is addressing Jews who are concerned about eating certain meats because of the dietary laws in the Old Testament, whereas in the First Corinthians passage, Paul is addressing not Jews, but Gentiles, Gentile Christians who come from a pagan background and are therefore more susceptible to falling back into pagan worship. So with that said, let me read what Paul wrote in the First Corinthians passage. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question in the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, for the the sake of conscience, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? It's the end of the passage. Some background on the situation Paul is addressing here. During that time, Greco-Roman society was saturated with idol worship. There were religious groups that practiced devotion to pagan gods and goddesses, and part of their worship ritual involved the use of meat in their offerings. At this point, let me refer to the writings of a guy named Marcus Terentius Varro. Marcus Terentius Varro was a Roman scholar and writer during the first century BC, and he was writing about animal husbandry. Varro suggested that there were two kinds of meat in the marketplace, depending on how the cattle was raised. Some were intended for normal butcher shops, uh, while others were being raised for altar sacrifices. And in the latter case, When the intent is to have them as a sacrifice, there were less concerns for the health of the animal. And consequently, the meat would be of a lower quality. Um, And not all of the meat being used for altar sacrifices or pagan sacrifices was consumed. And so there would be portions left over. And the religious group would would put this meat up for sale in the marketplace at a discount. My family used to get our groceries from Kroger when they were around. Every now and then you would find in the meat section items that are marked down, labeled with a yellow label that says Manager Special. Kroger was not the first to come up with this idea. They already had Manager Specials during the time of the early church. (laughs) Anyway, some Christians had a scruple about buying and eating meat that they considered tainted by its use in a pagan ceremony but then there would be those who would say that the ceremony is wicked but it doesn't mean the meat is bad that is sinful to eat and so they took advantage of the price of meat and consequently there arose a dispute between these two camps concerning the eating of meat offered to idols now Paul addresses this in an earlier in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians pointing out that there's no law with respect to the eating of meat offered to idols and therefore a matter of Christian liberty one is free to eat the meat and not be bothered by it but what if a person believes it's sinful to eat the meat can that person eat the meat Well, now we get to this very important area of Christian ethics that we all need to consider. It has to do with our conscience. The apostle mentions the word conscience, not once, but five times in the first Corinthian passage. And the principle that Paul is laying out is this. If I believe it's sinful to eat meat offered to idols, then and I go ahead and eat the meat, I have sinned. Not because the eating of meat is sinful in itself, but because I'm doing something that I believe is wrong. Now, one thing we have to be careful of here is applying Jiminy Cricket's theology that says, always let your conscience be your guide. I'm hoping you all know who Jiminy Cricket is. (laughs) If not, I commend the Disney movie Pinocchio to you. (laughs) Always let your conscience... I didn't get a whole lot of laughs. Maybe these people don't know who Jiminy Cricket is. Always let your conscience be your guide. That's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. We can confidently let our conscience be our guide if we have a conscience that is informed by the Word of God. If I commit a theft and my conscience is not bothered by what I did, then I'm listening to Jiminy Cricket and not to God's clear commandment that I should not steal. May I also mention that God has given us many ways or means to have informed consciences, such as Bible study, prayer, the counsel of other believers, as well as considering how history has treated some of these various issues. So, many means of grace for us to have an informed conscience. So, at this point, we end our brief detour to 1 Corinthians. We're going to go back to Romans 14. And uh, our passage for today, you may recall from Tom's sermon last week on verses 1 to 12 that Paul addressed the situation where one has scruples is judging those who don't have the same scruples. In the passage that Danielle read, Paul shifts his attention to those who don't have scruples being considerate of those who do. Now looking at the, entire, the entirety of chapter 14, the apostle is giving us very important instructions on how we are to deal with our brothers and sisters in disputed areas. We are to do so in a loving manner. When our consciences differ in disputable matters, we must not judge each other, keeping in mind that people on both sides will be judged ultimately by the Lord. Personally, I eat meat. But it's not my business to judge people who are vegetarians nor is a vegetarian to judge those who eat meat. And the principle holds true for many other disputable matters, whether we're talking about politics, the raising and schooling of our children, taste in music, what TV shows and movies to watch, and so on. I mean, God has not legislated in these areas, and people are called to agree to disagree and learn to live in peace. Now, there are, of course, and I've said this before, there are, of course, times when our preferences in these gray areas clearly violate God's laws and, and depending on the situation and all that. And I, but in those situations where they, it is clear that they violate God's laws, there can be no compromise, as I mentioned previously. Now, the first part of verse 13 in our passage this morning says this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. A good question at this point is, what does it mean to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother? Well, let's read verses 14 to 23 again, which is the rest of the chapter. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace And mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In verse 14, Paul is not saying that that there is no inherent evil in this world. Adultery and murder are inherently evil. What Paul is addressing are the disputes that arose among believers about food and drink, specifically meat and wine. But the principle here is applicable to other types of foods, And many other things, as I mentioned previously. Uh, Understandably, Jewish believers still struggled to reconcile the notion that there's now no unclean food with the dietary laws that were given to them in the Old Testament. And why, why are some foods considered dirty in the Old Testament and now they're considered clean? Why is that the case? Well, what made certain types of foods sinful or dirty? in the Old Testament, was God's prohibition on those foods, which He had established to show the world that His people were different, both internally and externally. But once God lifted those prohibitions, they became clean, and they may be eaten with a clear conscience. Now, there are probably churches today that consider what we eat as a disputable matter, but I think that for the most part, it's not an issue that the church continues to struggle with, especially churches in the West. I, mean, I understand that some people may not choose not to eat meat because of health concerns, not because they necessarily think it's sinful. But, but regardless, um, I, I may be wrong, but I'm not aware of anyone in our church family, let me know later if I'm wrong, that considers pork barbecue sinful. I like mine eastern north carolina style by the way but the other issue that paul dealt with during his time and the church still deals with today is the matter of drinking wine there are many christians who are convinced that to take even one sip of wine would be committing a sin and then there are churches that use real wine as part of the celebration of the lord's supper now i mentioned this not to take one side over the other, but to highlight the fact that this is a possible threat to unity within the body of Christ. So how are we to to handle this dispute if and when it occurs? Uh, Hang with me as I give you an example. For purposes of illustration, let's consider a hypothetical scenario. Let's say that there's an individual, person A. Person A is of the conviction that one is allowed to drink but is not allowed to get drunk. Person A is friends with person B, who is convinced that it is wrong to even have a sip of wine. For person A, causing person B to stumble would be to encourage him to go against his conviction to drink wine. So what Paul is saying is this. If I care about my brother and my brother has a scruple against drinking, even if I disagree with that scruple, I need to be careful. Not to offend the weaker brother, scandalizing him, causing a crisis in faith, and worse, encouraging him to do something he believes is wrong. Now, does that mean that no one is allowed to drink wine? Well, if there's one person in the community who believes it's wrong to drink wine, Paul says he won't do it. That is, he won't partake of wine in a manner or situation that will be putting a spiritual stumbling block before his brother or sister. Now, at this point it would serve us well to be reminded of what Paul said earlier in Romans 12:9 where he said this, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. If we are stronger in the faith on a particular disputable matter, our motivation in helping a weaker brother should be love. And that means we go beyond merely not doing anything to cause them to stumble, like it was just one of the items in our don't do list. But we should also not look down upon them, not be condescending, and not make fun of them in our heart. And these things we can observe if our love for our brethren is genuine. Now, there's a twofold dimension here that's not always easy to apply in real life situations. On the one hand, we are to be sensitive and bend over backwards for the weaker brother in our exercise of our Christian liberty. But on the other hand, the church has to be careful not to allow tyranny on the part of the weaker brother. If the weaker brother's scruple is elevated and moves to being legislated, we must resist that. Because if this happens, the church will be bearing false witness to an observing world. Not showing authentic Christianity but merely a caricature of it now while I was attending college in the Philippines I was invited to attend a seminar on rock and roll music that was to be given by a group who labeled themselves Christians I like pop music and because I was curious as to what these people had to say I didn't need a second invitation and I went to the seminar When the seminar started, the speakers introduced themselves as students, and although they didn't mention it explicitly, it was obvious to me, from their accent and from the color of their skin, that they were from the United States, probably visiting on some kind of summer mission trip. What they presented was bizarre and upsetting to me. They spoke on the evils of rock and roll music, and they supported their case, by playing some pop songs pop song recordings backwards i remember them playing stairway to heaven by led zeppelin and another one bites the dust by queen backwards and pointing out that they sounded like satanic chants <laughs> it wasn't funny to me then I, mean, I i i i came i came away from that seminar swimming in a sea of confusion i was not a believer then and I wondered at the time if my listening to kiss to sticks to earth wind and fire is a form of sinning even so my confusion didn't stop me from continuing to listen to them and after I came to a saving knowledge of the gospel I understood better what happened then the group that made the presentation had scruples when it came to rock and roll music and what they did was they elevated their scruples to the same level as God's law Now, those are the type of situations whereby the church should be vigilant. One example in the New Testament, and a lot of you are familiar with this, um, happened, um, it can be found in the book of Galatians. That was when there was a group called the Judaizers. They came along and maintained that circumcision was necessary for every Christian. This was the weaker brother charging with a vengeance. The Apostle Paul was very critical of them and refused to acquiesce because their scruple was casting a shadow on the light of the gospel. Looking back on that rock and roll talk that I attended, I can't help but think that there was a missed opportunity there. The speakers had an audience, but what they talked about was not the gospel, but something that is a disputable matter, not essential to the message of salvation. Now, let me expound a bit more on the idea of the weaker brother. In general, we are to treat the weaker brother with loving consideration so as not to put a stumbling block to their faith. But one difficulty we will all have is discerning who the weaker brother is. And an even more important question is this Is it possible that a minister of the gospel or a church elder be a weaker brother? The answer is yes. People in leadership might be behaving like a weaker brother. The complication here is that they are in positions of authority, and that poses a degree of danger to a church body. So if that's the situation the church is facing, what's the church to do? Are we to bend backwards like Paul tells us to do? I understand that wisdom in such scenarios could be on a case by case basis but to treat leaders as a weaker brother in a manner that Paul describes could be unwise and could even be dangerous because the position they occupy is one of authority so what do we do well we can glean much from much wisdom from the way Jesus handled different people i mean clearly compared to Jesus All of us are weaker brothers. Some of us have the tendency to think that we're the stronger brother, but we all are weaker brothers and sisters, especially compared to Christ. Now notice that when he dealt with the weak, he treated them with great patience and compassion. But notice also how he treated those who were in positions of authority, such as the scribes and Pharisees. In these situations, he gave them no quarter, he did not treat them as weaker brothers in the way that Paul describes, even though they had scruples about things where God has left men free. So it's important for each of us to, rec- uh, to ask God for help, to discern who the weaker brother is, and recognize and humbly acknowledge that it could be ourselves. Now this is a sobering thought for those of us Who are in leadership positions. All of us recognize and freely admit that we have clay feet and that any one of us could be wrong on a particular issue, but that's why we have a plurality in the elder board. Each of us has our personal scruples, so having a plurality in leadership is a safeguard against our personal scruples being passed on to the church as a form of legislation. John Piper, It's a name that you've heard many times from this pulpit. He's a former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. John Piper does not partake of alcohol. But back in 1982, he led an effort to remove from his church's bylaws a prohibition against drinking. And he was successful. His reasoning was very sound. Putting a prohibition in the bylaws does not challenge or change the heart. Now, he did this even though he had a personal scruple against drinking. My point here is that churches may have the best of intentions in legislating certain practices with the desire that their members live live holy lives. But the truth is, church legislation, while it has its place, it cannot in and of itself bring forth Holiness or holy living, we would do well to just consider St. Augustine's words that you probably all can quote by now Love God, then do what you want. Now, I realize that this scenario of a weaker brother in leadership does introduce some difficult complications, but what we have to understand is that we should look at this idea of Christian liberty in the whole context of the New Testament. Because sometimes we so qualify Christian liberty with the idea of the weaker brother that we could end up with no Christian liberty at all. Now, we've taken another detour in taking about, well, just for all the detours, talking about those in authority. Now, let's go back to Paul's teaching on how we are to regard one another and treat one another. Verse 16, verses 16 to 18 says this, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, what did Paul mean when he said, Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil? He's saying that we are to make every effort not to give the appearance of evil in the exercise of our liberties. We always have to keep in mind people's sensitivities in certain areas. He goes on to say that the kingdom of God is not about food or drink. And you can add to that lipstick, dancing, going to the movies, listening to rock music, or any other external thing. And then he says it's about righteousness and peace enjoying the Holy Spirit. It's a triad of virtues that describes what the kingdom of God is all about. It's not about all those external things. So uh, let me continue with verses 19 to 21. He says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul uses the word stumble or stumbling three times in our passage today. But for now, I would like for us to consider two other words that the apostle uses. Upbuilding and destroy. We all know that if we are going to build something, maybe a house, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort it takes a lot of ref- resources before we get the finished product but once that structure is finished we can destroy it within a fraction of a second of the or a fraction of the time it took to build it in ephesians 2 we are referred to as god's workmanship by his spirit he continues to build us up in the faith and that process of sanctification takes time as well and if we're not careful If we don't pause to consider how we treat each other, we can destroy what God has built in a person as quickly as someone who obliterates a building with explosives. That's why we should pay attention to what God has to say through Paul in this matter. This is particularly important when we're dealing with new believers. We could cause them to question God's love for them. Instead of attempting to make them... Like ourselves, when it comes to our scruples, we should seek ways to help them grow in their faith. Now, all of us realize that not all scenarios we face are easy. And in those difficult situations, we need to go to God for wisdom and and ask Him, God, how does loving my neighbor look like in this situation? Lay it at his feet and ask him to guide your steps, our steps. Again, if we take a 50,000-foot view of Romans chapter 14, one fundamental point we need to understand is that we are not bound beyond the limits of the actual law of God. A person who is convinced that one should not drive faster than 80 miles per hour can't go to the Autobahn in Germany and tell drivers shouting at them, Hey, don't go faster than 80, you maniac! Well, the other drivers will probably just ignore him because that's not the law in the Autobahn. On the other hand, if you drive at this speed long enough in the Raleigh Beltline, don't be surprised if you see the Kmart blue light special on wheels behind you. The point is... Where there is no law, where there is no law, there is no violation, there is no sin. The laws in the Autobahn are different from the laws here in the Raleigh Beltline. So when you drive even faster than 80 miles per hour there, you're fine. Now, even as we try to operate and live our lives within the limits of God's law, we can still be dealing constantly with legalism on one hand, and antinomianism, that is, anti-law, in the other. How does legalism look like? Well, if I tell you that you're not allowed to do something that God allows you to do, that's legalism. And how does antinomianism look like? That's when we use the idea of Christian liberty as a license to sin. And I say again, Christian liberty is never, ever, license to sin. Paul concludes the chapter this way, the faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Friends, whatever disputable matter binds our consciences whatever scruples we cling to we keep it between ourselves and god if you have a scruple in a matter where the lord has set you free cast that scruple unto the lord offering it as an oblation with a heart that seeks to honor him and for those who don't have the same scruple express your freedom unto the lord but both sides need to be charitable to each other keeping in mind that ultimately it is Christ who will judge the matter. Now, in closing, I will pray for us. But before I do, let's take a a minute to silently go before the Lord and ask for grace for us to love our neighbor genuinely in order that during those times when we curb our Christian liberties, um, we, in deference to the weaker brother or sister, we won't be haughty or disdainful. Let's ask God to search our hearts and reveal to us areas of repentance in this matter. So let's, let's go before the Lord. Let's go before our Heavenly Father, and then I will pray for us in a minute.